Welcome back to In the Labyrinth of Death, the podcast where we explore the choices people make in disasters and whether those choices keep them alive. I'm Finn. And I'm Marina. This week, we're talking about rabies. So rabies is actually one of my, like, for real, for real biggest fears. I was stressed out researching this. I'm going to be stressed out thinking about everything in this podcast for a while. I've been scared of rabies ever since I was in like the third grade and I found this like diagnose yourself at home medical book in my parents' house. And I was flipping through it and I always go worst case scenario with everything in my entire life. And I found the page on rabies and I realized that it was basically unsurvivable unless you get a vaccine. I actually became fixated on the idea that I was not going to be bitten by a rabid animal, but that a rabid bat would drool on me from the skies at night into an open wound somewhere on my body. And so I would actually, every single night when I went outside, I would wear a baseball cap to protect my face, like my eyes and my mouth, from like rabid bat drool from the heavens. So I've been really weird about rabies for a long time. I spent a long time trying to figure out like, If I went to a doctor's office and told them that I'm going to foster animals, will they give me a rabies shot? Like, I was literally trying to scheme ways to get a rabies vaccine, like, in advance. In the last few years, I've never been, like, a super outdoorsy person, but I would, like, go do outdoorsy things with people. And I was out backpacking with one of my best friends, and I don't sleep on the woods because I worry about, like, serial killers and trees falling on me and all kinds of stuff. So we were out there in a tent. We'd just been swimming, so we'd like hung up our bikinis on a tree, and I was looking at it and thinking, God damn it, we just put ourselves in a horror movie, right? Because I'm like six miles out in the woods. There's two women out here, clearly. There's bikinis on the tree. There's no one else out here. We're going to get murdered. And then I realized like, okay, laying there in the tent all night, I was like thinking through this, and I was like, I think I can fight a serial killer that has somehow stalked us six miles into the woods. Like, I feel like I'm amped up enough and I can do that. But then I was like, well... Is that really the worst thing that could like come upon our tent in the darkness? And then I realized the worst thing actually would be not just a regular ass bear, but a rabid bear. And I like, I think I could fight a bear, but I am 100% convinced that I could not fight a rabid bear in the dark in the woods or maybe any time of day. And so I spent the whole night holding on to like a pointed stick waiting for the rabid bear to come and eat me. And I have not gone camping since because I guess like my whole thing is I think of the worst case scenario and what I could do if I were in that scenario or how to avoid it. And I think that to me, a rabid bear is unsurvivable. And so I don't go out in the woods anymore. Before we get more into it, remember, we're not experts at all of any kind. We just really don't want to die. And we like researching and talking about it. Please listen to the full disclaimer at the end of each episode and don't sue us. We're just two regular people. The story I'm going to open with today has me a little bit freaked out. I'm a tiny smidge of a hypochondriac. I was downstairs. Our daughter was delaying going to bed, and she was making me pretend to sleep in the dog bed. And I had my arm under my head, and I think I pinched a nerve. I've kind of got, like, some pins and needles thing going on. And I, I don't know, I did not get bitten by a rabbit animal a few months ago. There was, like, a fuzzy thing that brushed up against me in the darkness, and I am a little bit convinced it was a bat and that I have rabies, and that's why my arm is tingling, but I think it's just coincidence and bad timing. It was May 3rd, 2017. A 65-year-old woman from Virginia was experiencing pain and tingling in her arm while she was out gardening in her backyard. Three days later, on May 6th, she went to urgent care about her arm. So they just think it's carpal tunnel, they give her a couple of prescriptions, and they send her home. 
Unfortunately, her arm doesn't get any better, and the next day, May 7th, she goes to an emergency room. Only now she's experiencing shortness of breath, insomnia, anxiety, and difficulty swallowing. They think she's having a panic attack, so they just give her some sedatives and they send her home again. But she doesn't make it far. She gets back to her car, and when she gets inside, she experiences really, really extreme claustrophobia inside of the car. So she goes back into the hospital, they give her more sedatives, and they send her home again. On the following day, May 8th, she's actually taken to the emergency room via ambulance. This time she has increased anxiety, increased tingling in her arm. It's actually gone all the way up her arm and into her shoulder now. She's experiencing shortness of breath, chest pain. They find out that she's tachycardic and also experiencing a form of ataxia called dysmetria, which means that she doesn't have fine motor control that you need for smooth movements. That evening at the hospital, she's getting more and more anxious and agitated and even aggressive, and she can no longer swallow water. At this point, the medical staff are asking her family if she's been exposed to any animals, and it turns out she'd been bitten by a dog while she was with a tour group in India. So the tour group kind of helped her clean up where she got bitten, so like the actual bite site, but she didn't get any post-exposure treatment for rabies, just because she didn't think about it. And she'd not been to a travel clinic in advance, so she hadn't gotten any pre-exposure rabies shots. On May 9th, she had to be intubated and sedated. They submitted samples to the CDC on May 10th, and the following day it was confirmed that she had a dog variant of rabies, which is rampant in India. They attempted the Milwaukee Protocol on May 13th, which we're going to talk about later, but her body doesn't mount any immune response to rabies at all, literally nothing. And her family doesn't have much of a choice to make in this, but they ultimately take her off of life support, and on May 21st, she passes away shortly after. I find it hard to believe that in 2017, especially among people from the U.S., that there wasn't some sort of protocol to either get shots before traveling abroad, especially to India, or afterwards. I feel like this is common knowledge at this point, and that something should have been done to prevent this from ever happening. Well, I think that people don't always go to travel clinics before they leave the country. And we went, so we went to the Bahamas a few years ago, and there's rabies in the Bahamas. We petted cats at the resort there. We easily could have been scratched. And I probably would have freaked out about rabies, but most people wouldn't have. So I think that even though the rabies vaccine is available, people don't get it very often. You have to remember that it's also extremely expensive. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's not compared to like your life and I would get it, but I think it might be like $600 or something. It's a decent chunk of change to get it. So if you're going on vacation already and you think you're unlikely to run into an animal that might be a rabbit, then I can understand not wanting to do it financially. But I had always thought that it was a known fact that in many parts of the world that are not Europe and the US, that there's a lot of wild animals that could inflict rabies on you. So for example, there's a lot of wild dogs in Russia, a lot of wild animals in Africa, Southeast Asia, Australia especially, and India is no different. There's a lot of wild feral dogs in India as well. And to me, I mean, I might just be in a privileged position, but that is immediately obvious to me that you should not take a dog bite as something you can just wash and walk away from. You have to assume that every single wild animal, even in Europe and America, has rabies of some kind. So it is wild to me how lackadaisical their procedures of treating this woman was after the bite. Yeah, especially even the tour guide. You can get rabies anywhere. And just because we don't have endemic dog rabies in the U.S. doesn't mean that a dog could not catch rabies from another animal. And then it's just a different strain of rabies. You could get, anytime you're bitten by an animal, even if it's like a stray dog that comes up to you and you're like, 
in a shopping mall in like the U.S. or something, you have to get rabies shots. It's not even just any animal bite. It's any time animal fluids enter your bloodstream. Or or maybe not even because you can actually catch rabies from a scratch. That's what I'm saying, but yeah. But you may not realize like a scratch could feel like it's a dry event, right? Like, oh, it's just their dry claws that scratch me. But they could have just scratched themselves, gotten it on the claws, and then they've like raked it into your skin. With that being said, rabies is definitely out there. Here's some quick stats from the CDC. Every 10 minutes, someone in the U.S. is treated for rabies exposure. Over 5,000 wild animals test positive for rabies in the U.S. every single year. You're most in danger from bats. Over 70% of fatal rabies cases are from bat bites. In fact, a third of all rabies exposure cases in the U.S. are from bats. The next highest is raccoons at 30%, then skunks at 20%, and finally foxes at 7%. That leaves about 10% of rabies exposure cases from other wild animals. About less than 8% of rabies exposure in humans came from a source other than wild animals, which means that would probably have come from domesticated animals, such as pets or even farm animals. And one note on those stats, again, since they're coming from the CDC, it's focused on the U.S. And so in the U.S., the vast majority of rabies cases in humans are coming from bats. But in a lot of other countries where dog rabies is still endemic, by far the number of cases are coming from dogs and not other animals. Yeah, and I think that is aligned with what people in the U.S. think the highest source of rabies comes from, which is dogs. I think a lot of people listening to this will be surprised that over 70% of it is from bats when they expect an equal amount of that coming from dogs. And you should be really scared of bats also. We'll get into it more later, but bats and how tiny their teeth are, you could be bitten in your sleep by a bat that you don't even know is there, get rabies, and then die. Every single year in the U.S., there are about 30,000 to 60,000 treated exposures to rabid animals, and only about one to two deaths. It's pretty standard per capita when compared with other developed nations. For example, the UK has had about 12 deaths over the past 20 years, all of which were contracted abroad. Overall, there's an estimated 55,000 deaths every year due to rabies, mostly in rural areas of Africa and Asia. All right, so I'm going to get into a little bit of what rabies is. Rabies is a zoonotic virus, meaning that it transfers between animals and humans. It's part of the Lyssa family of viruses, which includes a number of other viruses that cause rabies-like encephalitis. I actually didn't know about any of these other ones, and I bet they're all just as scary, but they're all in the same family together. Rabies is also a neurotropic virus, which means that it infects nerve tissue specifically. So like I said, it can be transmitted between animals or between animals and humans, most often through a bite or a scratch. But I always think about that scene in 28 Days Later when there's a guy who gets like a single drop of blood in his eye. It's also possible to get rabies through an open wound or a mucous membrane like that. So think like your eye or your nose. According to the CDC, the reservoir of an infectious agent is the habitat in which the agent normally lives, grows, and multiplies. So in this case, that's the animals. Rabies can infect any mammal, wild animals, domesticated animals, people, literally any. But like we saw earlier, it's most common in certain animals like bats, raccoons, skunks, foxes, and most of the world dogs. And one note on that, so rabies is only in mammals. Although I saw one study talking about how they were able to, in a laboratory setting, 
infect all kinds of creatures with the rabies virus. And I think it was maybe just like cell cultures, but I find that a little bit hard to believe, but it's not impossible. So rabies enters your body through an animal bite or a mucous membrane. And from there, it enters into your peripheral nervous system, which is stuff like the nerves in your hands and feet, basically anything that isn't part of your spinal column or brain. And then it goes from your peripheral nervous system and it moves, actually literally moves like 14 millimeters a day towards your central nervous system until it reaches your brain, in which case you're totally fucked. You're going to start getting symptoms of rabies after this contact in a matter of weeks or months, but it could be even sooner depending on the location and severity of the wound. So since it has to move from, you know, periphery all the way up to your central nervous system, if you get bitten on the head or something like that, it's going to be much faster. So you might start out with uh, tingling or itching at the wound site, but some people don't get any of that, and they just go straight to the flu-like symptoms, which for me as a minor hypochondriac is terrifying because anytime I start getting flu-like symptoms, I worry that it's the onset of rabies. So after the flu-like symptoms, you progress to the really bad neurological stuff because it's kind of entering into your central nervous system. And per the CDC, you'll have, quote, Cerebral dysfunction, anxiety, confusion, and agitation. As the disease progresses, the person may experience delirium, abnormal behavior, hallucinations, hydrophobia, which is fear of water, and insomnia, end quote. Some other sources mention claustrophobia, like in my first case, and something called uh, anemophobia, which is the fear of wind, which I'd never heard of before, and sensitivity to light and sound can also happen. But the big thing most of us are familiar with is hydrophobia, which isn't actually a fear of water, but is actually an aversion to water and also an inability to swallow anything, even your own saliva. So the general pathway to think through is it enters into a bite site, goes to the peripheral nervous system, goes to the central nervous system, which causes brain inflammation or encephalitis, then causes coma and then death. There are two main forms of rabies in humans, furious rabies and paralytic rabies. So when you're thinking about rabies, the one you're going to think about, like the foaming the mouth and the anger, that's furious rabies, and it's actually the most common, even in humans, and it makes up about 80% of rabies cases. It's the standard rabies you hear about, everything from anger and aggression to hydrophobia. Paralytic rabies only accounts for about 20% of rabies in humans and it's characterized by a progressive muscle weakness that eventually leads to paralysis and death. Both kinds, furious and paralytic rabies, actually both lead to coma and death. Furious rabies is usually by cardiac arrest, and paralytic rabies is usually by respiratory failure. There's also an uncommon third type of rabies called atypical rabies that makes up a very, very small amount of cases, but it's obviously just as fatal as the other two types. So what do you mean by atypical in this case? I think it basically means just a different presentation of rabies, at least initially, so maybe different set of symptoms. And before we recorded this, I found kind of a crazy case uh, that was in China of a 32-year-old man. So this part is a little bit inappropriate for children, so if they're listening, skip ahead like 60 seconds. So that was your warning. But basically, there was a 32-year-old guy in China, and he first presented with frequent ejaculations as his first symptom, and it it worked up to like over a course of like a day or two, up to 40 times over a few hours in the morning. And that was like his main symptom. He didn't show any other traditional rabies symptoms like hydrophobia until day five. So no one considered that rabies could be the culprit. And he actually died the next day. So he basically was like, 
something horrible and neurologically wrong is happening to my body. I shouldn't be ejaculating 40 times in a few hours. He goes to the clinic. They don't know what's going on with him. And then he starts getting the bad symptoms. And by the time he'd gotten to the clinic, he actually died the next day. And it turns out in his case, he'd gotten a superficial scratch from a dog. So he wasn't bitten by like a dog or a bat or anything. He got scratched, which, you know, isn't like you're not thinking about like saliva being on a dog's claws. And because it was just a scratch, he didn't get vaccinated. He didn't even think about it. And they don't even know if that's necessarily what caused it. Maybe he was bitten by a bat and didn't realize, but they think that it was the dog scratch that did it. So I think it's pretty evident at this point that rabies is really, really fucking bad, as in there's no cure for it and it's 100% fatal. So why don't we talk about what you should do to prevent being exposed in the first place? Number one, avoid bats. Do not leave any doors or windows open without screens. You're just inviting rabid bats to come inside and bite you. Remember, any bat in the house warrants a call to animal control. And if you're bitten, if you're asleep at all when it's in the house or there are unsupervised children, you're probably all going to need to get vaccinated. And the reason you have to be so careful with bats in the house is one, they carry rabies. And two, they're so small that you may not know you've been bitten. There are some species of bats that the little tiny bite marks are going to be basically undetectable if you're not looking for them. So if you've been unconscious and you could have been bitten in your sleep, you may not find the bites. Or if there's a kid in the house and you haven't like seen the kid at all times when the bat was in the house, it's possible that the bat like bit them or they touched the bat and they're not going to tell you and you're not going to find the bite marks on them. Yeah, and following up on that, you should also stay out of caves, obviously, because that's where bats live. There were two cases in the 50s in which cavers were thought to have been infected by aerosolized rabies in caves that were tightly packed with bats. And that's a crazy thing to say, aerosolized rabies. That is probably the most terrifying thing you can think of. But while aerosolized rabies has been confirmed to cause infection in animals within a lab setting, the two cavers we mentioned were only assumed to have been infected. Regardless, more bats means more potential opportunities to be bitten. Secondly, avoid wild animals, especially ones that are acting strange. Call animal control. It's the nice thing to do, especially if it has rabies. That's a terrible way to die, no matter what kind of animal you are. It can happen fast, though. You may not even see the animal come up. I've seen a lot of videos of rabbit animals biting people, and sometimes they seem like they just come out of nowhere. In one, a horse was just standing there minding its own like horse business. A skunk comes out of nowhere and starts biting its ankles. So, and there's a few cases I found of rabid horses also after they weren't vaccinated. So make sure to get all of your animals vaccinated because remember, every single mammal is vulnerable to rabies. One caveat to that though, interestingly, opossums are way less likely to get rabies than other animals. And I think that's actually because of their body temperature. So we really like opossums. They are less likely to get rabies, but they can still get it. And they eat a lot of ticks. So that's good. If you're traveling... Have contact with stray or wild animals. <laughs> Please leave that. <laughs> That's what you wrote. It's this if you're traveling, have contact with stray or wild animals or any other weird case. It sounds like you're communing with wild animals when you travel. Like I was trying to write. In any of those cases, you're going to want to consult with a doctor about getting a preventative rabies vaccine. Obviously, if you're the kind of person who's working in a rabies laboratory setting, you're already going to need to be vaccinated and checked on a regular basis to make sure you're still immune. But you already know that. 
Like I mentioned earlier, I for real used to come up with all kinds of scenarios I could use to get somebody to give me a rabies vaccine. And it turns out, like, I didn't have to use any of those. I didn't even have to leave our backyard to, like, get a real reason to get a rabies vaccine. But we'll talk about that later. So now that we know that prevention is the best way to not get rabies, let's talk about the flip side of the coin. What do you do if you have been exposed? Well, you also need to call animal control. They can test the animal if it's still around and get a definitive answer on whether or not it's rabid by testing the brain tissue. If you think you've been exposed, you need to go to the hospital. According to the CDC, it's considered a medical urgency, but not an emergency. That means you need medical attention ASAP, but don't call 911 unless you're bleeding out from your wounds. You're going to want to wash your wounds as quickly as possible with soap and water. The WHO guidelines for clinicians say to wash it for at least 15 minutes with soap and water. I'm guessing it's to help flush it out as much as possible. You'll probably get it washed again and flushed with a virucidal. <laughs> virucidal? Virucidal? I think it's virucidal. You'll probably get it washed again and flushed with a virucidal agent at the doctor as well. Try to wash it by yourself to avoid getting anyone else exposed. If someone is helping you, make sure that they're wearing gloves to prevent them from getting exposed to any saliva or bodily fluids that may be on your hands. You don't want to run the risk of any of it getting into an open wound. After you've gotten everything cleaned up, go to the doctor and get yourself some good old-fashioned rabies shots. If you have not been previously vaccinated against rabies, you're going to need to get some immunoglobulin administered at the bite site. It's administered according to your weight, so it's quite a large volume, and you might need to have it injected into multiple different muscle groups. If the doctors don't see a clear and obvious bite site, like if you had a bat in the house, then they're just going to inject it into some large muscle groups like your quads or your deltoids. So the immunoglobulin injection is a little bit uncomfortable and your muscles may twitch due to the volume that's being put into them, but I wouldn't say that it's overly painful. And I also really have to be super careful with the dosage because they have to give you enough to protect you, but not enough so that they give you too much immunoglobulin, which is going to actually weirdly suppress your immune response to rabies, in which case your body wouldn't fight off the rabies and then you would die even after you got the vaccine. You may see the immunoglobulin referred to as RIG or R-I-G, and that stands for rabies immunoglobulin. And I found out there are actually two kinds. There's H-RIG for human-derived rabies immunoglobulin and E-RIG for equine-derived immunoglobulin. And the ratios of that are actually different based on the half-life. So if you need to get immunoglobulin and they have the equine, you'll have to get twice the volume because it has half the half-life. So the immunoglobulin is created either from humans or horses who've been vaccinated against rabies and they have to have produced very strong titers, which means that someone has given them crazy antibodies against rabies by the vaccination, and then that can be given to someone else to give them passive immunity until they can build up their own from the vaccine. So once you've gotten the immunoglobulin, you'll get your first dosage of the rabies vaccine the same day, that's day zero. You'll need additional vaccine doses at days three, seven, and 14, and possibly on day 28 as well if you're immunocompromised. The actual rabies vaccine is just like getting a vaccine like a flu shot or anything in terms of like volume and discomfort. It's not a big deal at all. And it's given in your arm like a normal shot too, not in your stomach like a lot of people think. One side note that I also read about, and again, I'm not a doctor, Finn's not a doctor. We're just interested in this stuff. If you are immunocompromised or if they realize something could have been off with your vaccine, your vaccination schedule, 
you may need to get your immune response tested via serological testing to monitor your immune response and make sure it's where it needs to be. So the reason, like I said earlier, that you need immunoglobulin if you've never received the vaccine before is that it takes 7 to 10 days to build an immune response from the rabies vaccine post-exposure. And that means that you could become symptomatic to rabies in that time frame, especially if you've been like bitten in the head or something. And at that point, once you're symptomatic, it's basically too late and you're dead. So you're given immunoglobulin to kind of give you passive immunity and over that time frame and kind of bridge that gap between when you're exposed and when you could get immunity from the actual vaccine. So in the case where you've already been vaccinated against rabies before, meaning you knew you were traveling or you were going to be like at risk, so you got the preventative shot, or if you've previously been exposed and you've gone through the whole immunoglobulin and rabies vaccine thing before, you don't need to get immunoglobulin again. So again, if you've been vaccinated before or you've gotten the immunoglobulin before, you don't need it. In fact, you're only allowed to get the immunoglobulin once in your life. So if you've been previously vaccinated, skip the immunoglobulin and you're going to be getting rabies vaccines on days zero and three and that's it. So that's another reason to consider getting the preventative shot where if you get that preventative shot once in your life, no immunoglobulin and you basically have the number of rabies shots you'll have to get later if you are ever exposed. And one other note, if you have a pet that's come into contact with a possibly rabid animal, like everything else here, you're going to need to contact animal control and report it. And you're probably going to have to quarantine that animal for a while if they can't rule out rabies. And two, contact your vet ASAP to get a rabies booster, even if your pet's up to date with their vaccinations. It's better safe than sorry. If your pet's not up to date with its vaccinations, one, shame on you, get their vaccinations. And two, the quarantine's going to be much longer and stricter. You always need to make sure you're keeping them up to date, but rabies is by far the most important. And it's probably illegal where, wherever you are to not keep your pet vaccinated against rabies. Basically, everywhere I've checked, it's against the law to not have a vaccinated pet. So rabies is an absolutely awful way to die. Luckily for the rest of us, a guy named Louis Pasteur, who also was the inventor of the pasteurization process. So if you enjoy dairy, you can thank Louis Pasteur for that. He invented the rabies vaccine by doing some completely off-the-wall like experimental process that I think you can explain a lot better than me. Yeah, it's not completely off the wall. So the idea being that when you make a lot of vaccines, what you want to do is you want to attenuate them, right? You want to weaken them. So whether you're completely killing it or not, which is mostly what you're going to get nowadays. But the idea is he basically infected rabbits with rabies so that weakened it a little bit in terms of transmission to humans. But then he killed the rabbits, took out their spinal tissue, and then he basically sun dried it. Like, as far as I know, I'm not like a historian, but sun and like lack of moisture is going to kill rabies. So he was able to kind of create like a series of vaccines. I think it was like 14 initially where you would get like the very, very, very old and very, very, very dry spinal tissue put into a suspension and then injected into you and kind of work from like the very old spinal tissue to like progressively newer and fresher and like wetter spinal tissues. Obviously, it wasn't like completely wet, but like it was just fresher. And so by the time you got to the end of it, the idea is that you would have built up an immunity. And he actually did this for the first time in like a human test on a boy who'd actually been bitten by like a grocer's dog or something. And the mom convinced him to give him the vaccine because he was going to die anyway. And it worked. So we have been subject to getting rabies injections ourselves. Why don't you start off telling us about that? Yeah. So we actually got rabies vaccines last spring. So I had just taken the dogs out for a walk. It was dark. It was like 10 o'clock at night. They had like the zoomies. They wanted to go out in the backyard and just run around for a little bit. So 
it had occurred to me previously that there could be skunks out there just because I'd actually been, we'd been approached by a skunk in the yard before. I actually had them on leash one time and it like backed up towards us in the backyard, mm-hmm. like tail up. So I knew there was an aggressive skunk. It chased me across the yard, like across the road before. So I'm, I was pretty cautious about it. This night, last spring, I just opened up the door and I literally stuck my nose out of the door, smelled the air and said, nope, no skunks, not worth walking out and checking this out because it was kind of chilly. And so I let them run out in the backyard and I went back into the kitchen and then not 30 seconds later, I hear one of our dogs screaming because they're Shebas and they scream, screaming frantically and scratching on the door. So I run over there and I open it. And he comes like into the house and he's like staggering and he's drooling. And I think first that he's been poisoned, that like a vengeful neighbor for whatever reason, we don't have any neighbor enemies, but like that somehow he's been poisoned. And I I was trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that like entire half of his face and like his shoulder are yellow. And then the smell hits me and I realize that he smells like rotting garlic. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, oh, fuck, it's a skunk. Mm-hmm. And so then he's in the house and then our other dog's in the yard and the skunk must have run off at that point because our other dog was just standing there like, oh, what happened? Because mm-hmm. he's slower and fatter and he didn't get sprayed as much. So I get him to come back inside and then I'm like yelling at you that there was a skunk and luckily our daughter was asleep. You were downstairs, right? I was. Okay. So then I like drag him I think I take him into the bathroom to wash him. Yeah, you did. Okay, so I take him into the bathroom to wash him. You're holding Harry, one of our dogs. Yes, I held him back. Okay, so he's holding the fat dog who was in the back and didn't get sprayed as much. Mm. He was a little bit stinky, but not bad. Because the thing with like skunks, if you haven't had to deal with this, is the smell gets everywhere. It's like if you brush against something and it's got skunk on it, it's Mm going to smell like skunk for the next like two months. It's awful smell. So... He's holding on Harry. I've got Pippin. I take him into the bathroom, try to clean him up. His eye is starting to close shut because it's basically like pepper spray in your eye when he gets sprayed by a skunk. And then I notice that and he's foaming in the mouth, not because he has rabies, but because he got like basically skunk pepper spray mm-hmm. in the mouth. So he's like drooling and it's really gross and it's painful for him. And then I notice that he doesn't just have skunk spray in his own drool. He's actually got blood on his chin. Yep. And that's where it gets complicated because skunks spraying... Your animal, you can't get uh, you can't get rabies from skunk spray. Same as you can't get it from like feces or urine. It's specifically in like blood and saliva, that kind of stuff. So if he'd just been sprayed, it would have been fine. I don't even know if you have to call animal control about that. But he had blood on his chin. So the question is, did he bite the skunk? Mm-hmm. So he might have skunk blood on him. Did the skunk bite him? Or maybe he accidentally bit his own tongue, which is what a vet thinks may have happened, mm-hmm. that like he got sprayed in the face And as he was recoiling and like his mouth was like, oh gosh, he like closed his mouth. He could have Mm -hmm. bitten his own tongue and that could have been the blood. It happens to the best of us. Or it could just be that his gums were irritated from Mm -hmm. the skunk spray. So it could have been anything. But because we didn't know, we ended up having to get rabies vaccines. And when I was cleaning him, I had you bring me gloves. No, I didn't. I didn't wear gloves because I already had him on my hands. Yes. So I cleaned him without wearing gloves. So if it had been, if he'd had skunk saliva or blood on him, and I had a small wound on my hands. I could have been exposed. And I remember the last thing I said as I was like running into the bathroom because you were going to start cleaning stuff up because he had drooled blood and drool like a path from like our side door all the way to like the first floor bathroom. Yeah, yeah. 
So you went to go clean up. And I remember the last thing I said as I was like running into the bathroom was to put gloves on. And you didn't because things were so crazy. So then you're cleaning up the blood and saliva with your bare hands. And I'm cleaning the dog with my bare Mm -hmm. hands. So we've both potentially been exposed to that point. But only if we had like an open wound or open sore kind of that. Yeah, but I mean, like I I have like, I, I pick at my nails. So I've got open wounds on like most of my like nail beds. I've got dry skin. So like I have like a split on one of my nails here. So like if a skunk decided to drool on my hands that had rabies, I would get rabies. Like I have actively like small open wounds on my hands. I think a lot of people don't realize that they have that as well. Like you have a hangnail, like maybe you just bite or peel your nails off and it just goes a little bit too far. That could actually be a little micro wound that is like an open part of your epidermis. Yeah, exactly. Like I don't think I had any like clearly Mm -hmm. open wounds at the time, but I could not say definitively that I had zero, you know? So we ended up, I tried to go get rabies vaccines that night. It was a whole thing. So we ended up having to do a few things. First, we had to call animal control. Mm-hmm. Because the skunk got away, we couldn't verify that it didn't have rabies. So official guidelines, according to animal control, was we have to act as if it had rabies because we can't rule it out because mm-hmm. rabies is so awful. So our dogs were up to date on the rabies vaccines, but even so, they had to get their boosters. So I took them to an emergency vet the next day and then got them their vaccines. And actually, if you ever run into this, I also had a friend that had this happen to her too. It's extremely difficult to get into a like a vet and get a rabies vaccine after your dog's been exposed. I called a bunch of places and they didn't have any openings. And emergency vets don't always have rabies vaccines. So I, I said emergency vet. I actually took them to kind of like an urgent care vet because the rabies, the emergency vets that I called didn't have the rabies vaccine because they don't do preventative medicine, which is crazy to me because if your animal's been attacked by a wild animal that could have rabies, then you would expect them to have rabies vaccines. vaccine yeah. yeah for after the fact but they don't so i took him into the vet so they were okay they flushed his eyes he actually had to have pip and the one who got sprayed in the face i had to put eye ointment on him for a while because his eye was so irritated so the dogs were taken care of animal control told us they had to be quarantined for 40 days even though they were vaccinated and got their booster it's just like an abundance of caution because rabies is so fucked up so we had to like keep them on leash they had to avoid all their dog friends all that kind of stuff for 40 days And then they had to be like officially released by the Department of Health afterwards. Like a guy came to our house and I took the dogs out on a leash and he weirdly was terrified of dogs for being the guy who's like releasing the rabid dogs from quarantine. He was like, oh, are you going to let them go? Don't let them go. I was like, I'm not going to like unleash the hounds on you, dude. Like, Mm -hmm. it's okay. He's like, well, are they rabid? I'm like, no, but you told me that's your job. But clearly, no, they're not rabid. So that was the dog part of it. Then there was the us part of it. So I was super paranoid and didn't want to. I like took a shower and stuff before like I went in because our daughter woke up later. I'd already taken a shower and changed clothes. So I was being super paranoid. Like what if I somehow still had it on me? Like she wanted me to hold her hand because it was like the middle of the night. She got scared. And so I didn't want her to have gotten infected, but she was totally safe because I had like fully showered, fully changed clothes before like she had any contact with us. Yeah. And we cleaned the house like crazy. So she was good. Dogs were good. So then it was just us that had to deal with it. So when you're getting the first rabies vaccine, you basically, at least where we are, have to go to a hospital to do it. Mm -hmm. I've known a few other people who've had to deal with the whole rabies thing. And you can't really go to your primary care doctor. Urgent care is probably not going to have it on hand. They might. And if they do have the vaccine, they probably also don't have the immunoglobulin on hand. Mm -hmm. 
So we went to like the straight up like ER because that's really the only place that's equipped to handle it, mm-hmm. even though it's it's not like a big procedure. But the problem is the rabies vaccine and immunoglobulin expire fairly quickly, apparently, and they're expensive. And it's rare to get exposed to a rabid animal in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So they don't actually have them on stock in most doctor's offices. Mm-hmm. So we go in. It's actually pretty straightforward. We, they actually put us both in the same room since we're married. And that was super easy. It's basically like when they give you the immunoglobulin, it's done by weight. And they put it into your large muscle groups. And so I I was probably embarrassing you a lot. I was asking the nurse like a ton of questions because I've been scared of rabies my entire life. And I this was like, one, one of my worst nightmares coming true. And two, like one of the most fascinating thing that's ever happened because I could actually sit there and like interrogate this woman. And so she was just basically I was asking her all these questions and she was saying like, well, there was a guy and he'd had a, like a bat in his, his attic, but he was a bodybuilder. So he weighed a ton and she basically had to load up all of his muscles with immunoglobulin because you have to get this large volume of, of this, the solution into your body and your muscles can only hold a certain amount of it. So it's like every single muscle group he was injecting it into, but obviously we're not bodybuilders. So I think we got them, the immunoglobulin, we got one in each quad, mm-hmm. right? And then did we get them in our butts too? We did. I don't remember. I think we did. Because I remember, I think I was still interrogating the nurse when she was like injecting my butt. And it's such a large volume of fluid that it can actually make your muscles twitch. Mm-hmm. Because like, because I remember, I think my, my butt may have twitched. And actually, it was it was such a large needle and large volume. I got a big bruise on my leg, on both of my, I both of my thighs. I did, both of mine. Um, so they gave me the, they gave us both the immunoglobulin and then you also get like that first vaccine. So we also got that at the hospital the day one. And then we ended up having to have, I called, so we went to an urgent care place. They didn't have it on stock. And so they actually had to have someone drive it up from another, from like their central location. Like mm-hmm. a human carrier drove our vaccines up here. They came from Richmond. Yeah, they did. So they like drove them up and then they gave them to us. Mm-hmm. It's a whole coordination thing to like get to the hospital, then figure out what you're going to do for the rest of your like three remaining vaccines. After Mm -hmm. that, you have to coordinate it. They have to like communicate with the hospital. We could have made it easier and just gone back to the hospital for all of our vaccines, Mm -hmm. but that's more expensive. Like there's all kinds of like logistical things that you have to figure out with Mm -hmm. this. But if you don't and you are unlucky and you did have a paper cut and it was rabid, then you're dead. So I don't know. For me, it was 100% worth it. Okay, so getting back on track, we know that rabies is 100% fatal in literally every case. Almost. We'll, we'll talk about the Milwaukee Protocol later. It basically is every case. Yeah. So on the flip side of that, are there any cases where the vaccine does not work? The vaccine is almost 100% effective. So chances are, if you are at risk for getting rabies because you've been exposed to an animal, you're going to be okay. But I always go down every single worst case scenario that is possible. So I spent a long time trying to find any examples of people not being okay after getting it. Meaning they've been exposed, they get their vaccine, they think they're going to be okay, and then it doesn't work and they get rabies anyway and then they die. So I found a few cases. It's extremely rare and this should not dissuade you from getting the vaccine because if you don't, you will absolutely die. This is just if you feel like being like me and being a little bit anxious, there is a infinitesimally small chance that it will not work and you're going to die anyway. So I found a few cases in the 80s 
where they maybe weren't given precisely right. Like they didn't wash the wound correctly with like soap and water. So in those cases, I can kind of understand where it didn't work. I did find a case and I'll see if I can find the article again, where it was a guy, I think it was in Vietnam. He was a construction worker and he was bitten by a dog. I think like on the hand, he went basically straight to the emergency room. They had immunoglobulin. It was correctly stored. They put it directly into like the wound where the dog bit him. And then he got the rabies vaccine. He did this full course and he died like within a few months. Like he got full on rabies and died. And they, that was the one that scared me the most because that guy wasn't immunocompromised. There wasn't anything wrong for whatever reason. He just didn't mount an immune response to it in time and he died. Well, it's weird that he died months after the fact, because usually when you get rabies and it's just like the vaccine just doesn't take or something like that, you die within like a week. No, not true. You die within a week of getting the symptoms. Uh, this guy right. walked around for a while thinking he wasn't going to get rabies, because why would you, mm. right? Because you did the right thing. You went to the doctor. The doctors treated you. Everything's fine. And then he got the flu-like symptoms. Then it went into full-blown rabies. And then he, he died I don't know, maybe within a week. You have a week to live once they appear. But once you do get the symptoms, it is too late. Yes. Yeah. That's um, actually a really good segue. So with prior to 2004, rabies was basically a 100% fatal guarantee. That's like, that's worse than the worst Ebola, which is like 95% fatal, mm-hmm. right? So 100%, you get rabies, you die. It's going to happen. It's going to be awful. In 2004, that changed a little bit with the Milwaukee Protocol. And so nowadays, between that and a different protocol, it's actually 14% survival rate of people who are not properly vaccinated who become symptomatic of rabies. So still, I don't know what that math is, like 86% chance you're going to die? Something like that, yeah. So the odds are still really, really bad. And if you do survive... You're going to have to learn how to talk again. You're going to have to learn how to walk again because there's going to be serious neurological damage and you may never be the same. So get the vaccine. But can you go ahead and walk us through a little bit of what the Milwaukee Protocol is? Yeah, so it was a procedure that was introduced back in 2004 when a 15-year-old American girl who's named Gina or Gianna was bitten by a bat on one of her fingers. So in a pretty inconspicuous place if you're not looking for it, right? Yeah, they did know that she was bitten, though. Yeah, in this case, they did know that she was bitten. But just want to say as a warning for people, you can get bitten on the finger and not even know it. Like tiny little, tiny little dots. bat fangs. And look it up, too. Bat fangs are teeny, tiny things. Their teeth are fucking creepy if you look at them up close. Mm. Also, they're like, they're glistening and ugh. Yeah, so anyways, uh, the Milwaukee Protocol. This little 15-year-old girl, I don't want to say little, she's just a 15-year-old girl. She was bitten by a bat on her finger and her mom cleaned the wound in the right place, uh, so where she was bitten, obviously. But it didn't actually occur to them to get the rabies vaccine post-exposure. So that was a fuck-up. Yeah, and I think a lot of the problem is people just don't think about it. No. Like, if the bat is not... If you don't think it's behaving weirdly, you think it's mostly a, a dog thing or mm-hmm. something, people aren't going to think about it necessarily. But I knew a girl in high school who had to get rabies vaccines because a squirrel bit her. Mm-hmm. Like, if any mammal has bitten you... And you don't know 100% mm-hmm. it's vaccinated against rabies, you need to get the shots. But keep going. Yeah, anyway, so post this rabies exposure, right, she didn't get the shot. And about one month later, she started getting sick. And she had, like you said, flu-like symptoms. And shortly thereafter, 
She started getting all of the classical rabies symptoms like hydrophobia. She was agitated. She was absolutely not her former self at all. So she was then taken to a pediatric hospital and put under the care of a Dr. Willoughby, who then realized that he might be able to save her life if he could give her body enough time to fight the virus before it started completely destroying her brain. So as a result, they actually put Gina under a medically induced coma, specifically designed to slow the progress of rabies towards her brain. And that actually turned out to give her body more time to mount an immune response. She survived, but after the fact, she had to learn to walk and even talk again. So it wasn't a seamless kind of procedure where you come out unscathed. But she is totally fine now. Yeah, exactly. It it takes time, I mean. According to some uh, quick research about this, it looks like the Milwaukee Protocol has about a 14% success rate, which is a lot higher than I personally thought it would be. I, I think that inducing comas in people alone, that success rate after the fact should be like three percent that's a risky thing to do i feel like again we're not doctors so we don't know shit but i feel like if i was being put in a coma that means i'm probably going to die yeah you would want to have your like will and like affairs in order before you get which you should have anyway but yeah well she was 15 yeah i mean me as a human yes Yes. absolutely and this relates to a very well-known concept at least i think is well known in medicine where you're not dead until you're dead and warm because if you're cold and maybe hypothermic and you go unconscious and like that, your chance of being resuscitated is extraordinarily high. It is actually like shockingly high. I don't know what the number is because we didn't do that kind of research for this topic, but um, there's a lot of cases where young boys, young girls, they are somehow unconscious. They have something that knocks them out and they need like resuscitation, CPR, defibrillation, that kind of thing. And if they're cold when it happens the chance of success is drastically high. There's a story, there's a really hot story a couple of years back about how some doctors, they they saved this boy by doing CPR for like fucking eight hours. Or something. I'm not oh making this God. up. Literally, like the lower bound for this is three hours, which is in fucking sane. But the upper bound is like, it might even have been more than eight hours. It might have been 12 hours. It might have been double digits. This, this only holds for hypothermia though, right? I think it's for injury and maybe some diseases because if you can reduce how much energy your body spends your organs spend it's much easier to resuscitate i don't really know how the mechanism works honestly i don't think in medicine they really have figured it out either otherwise you would put everybody into like a medically induced coma or some kind of hypothermic environment yeah but the success rate is completely off the wall if you are cold So we actually spent a few minutes looking up what the actual scientific term for this is, and it turns out to be therapeutic hypothermia. So if any of you guys who are listening have any experience in the medical profession about resuscitating people in a hypothermic environment, please let us know. It is an absolutely fascinating topic, and we'd love to know more about it. Yeah, and for the record, I don't know if in this rabies case with the Milwaukee Protocol, I don't know if you're actually hypothermic in this case, but I think what you're saying is the analogy holds that, you know, the coma slows things down in the same way that hypothermia Mm -hmm. would. Yeah, because in both cases, I'm not saying like every single time you're in a coma and every single time that you're hypothermic, the same effect happens to the body. I think it's just that any process that slows down your organs from dying, rotting, that kind of thing will be beneficial, strictly beneficial to increasing your chances of survival. So there's the Milwaukee Protocol. There's also a Brazilian Protocol that basically does the exact same thing, but tweaks it a little bit in terms of how they bring them out of the coma. But between both of these, there have only ever been 20 humans in the history of humanity who have survived rabies without post-exposure vaccination. So 
If you're thinking you'll survive with the Milwaukee protocol, you probably won't. And you need to get your vaccine if you've had any exposure to a rabbit animal. I've read a few stories of people who didn't get vaccinated after getting exposed to animals, particularly bats. I read about one guy, he was driving his car in the middle of the day. A bat flew in through his car window and bit him. I think it tested positive and he still declined the rabies vaccine and he died. It was another case where it was, I think, an older man. I think he was in his 80s. He was asleep in his bed, woke up with a bat biting him on the neck. It tested positive for rabies. He declined the vaccine and he also died horrifically. So if you fucked up and they don't think that you're eligible for the Milwaukee protocol, basically what's going to happen is they're going to give you supportive care. So you're going to get like sedation. You're going to be intubated to keep fluids in you because you can't drink water. And it's going to try to make your imminent death less terrible, but you are imminently going to die. So again, if in doubt at all, get the vaccine. It is expensive and it is a logistical headache to try to iron out how it's going to happen. But it is a miserable and a certain death if you're exposed to rabies and you don't get the vaccine. So it's preventable death. Just go and get the vaccines and figure it out. So switching gears real quick into depictions of rabies in film and TV shows, there really hasn't been too many cases where it's the central topic. But one thing that comes to mind for me immediately that is a proxy for rabies is the classical Fast Zombies movie. So things like 28 Days Later and 28 Weeks Later come to mind. So I'm curious to know what your thoughts about that are. So that is definitely a good kind of like comparison. We even like in the werewolf episode, we were talking about like rabies rules, like, oh, you catch it and then you're bitten. And I think I think rabies is actually like an archetype behind a lot of these like big bad monsters, like werewolves where like it's the mad dog that's going to bite you and then you turn into it too or it's the zombies that are going to bite you and you turn into them so i think it's i think it's just such a fucked up disease that it's kind of in our psyche in terms of like monsters and what what goes bump in the night and what scares us so one thing that i think is incredibly interesting from a cultural standpoint is that despite rabies being such a mammalian virus in fact it's exclusively a mammalian virus yeah how it's not really a thing that is depicted in like a werewolf movie. For number one, there aren't really any werewolf movies in the first place. It's certainly not like a viral kind of phenomenon. Like you think of Twilight as the most recent werewolf thing, which is unfortunate. That's awful. Yeah. Go back and listen to the werewolf episode if you haven't, Mm because there are good ones, a handful, like American Mm -hmm. Werewolf in London, but keep going. Yeah, because... It was transferred in that film, correctly so, through a bite or yeah. just exposure through open wounds. Um, I think that it's just a symptom of the werewolf being so tied to like supernatural elements as opposed to zombies being exclusively man-made, artificial, unsupernatural. So that's why it's kind of been like the de facto, quote-unquote, rabies proxy. Oh, I didn't even think about that. I Mm -hmm. guess they aren't supernatural. Exactly. There's never like, oh, these are like magic zombies. It's always like, hey, somebody fucked up. We made some strain somewhere, and now it's like unleashed upon the world. Yeah, you're right. Well, I mean, like original zombies were original. Yeah, like voodoo zombies and that kind of stuff. That was that was magic, magic. Yeah, but zombies, like with a capital Z in Hollywood and TV shows, it's definitely much more like medical. If that makes sense. I think one of the best depictions of this. So, 28 days later, 28 weeks later, they actually said that was Ebola, even though it's really more like rabies. But that's okay. One of the best movies that we've seen in this genre, I think, is Wreck, the 2007 Spanish movie. There's an American remake that came out in 2008, but I don't recommend that at all compared to Wreck. Wreck is a fucking 
awesome movie. I know it's like found footage that may not be your thing, but I really, really enjoyed it. And I think apart from the speed of infection, I don't think it was that bad of a depiction. And apart from the whole like zombie movie genre, there is one other thing I wanted to bring up because I recently did a full rewatch in like the last year or so. And that's when in Seinfeld, Elaine thinks she has rabies and she suddenly realizes that she can't swallow and she starts foaming at the mouth. And I just want to like, I have never related more to a, like a TV show character ever than in that moment because researching this, I've been so anxious. I like my hands have been tingling at certain points. Like I've been wondering if maybe I'm salivating a little bit too much. So I'm a real hypochondriac and rabies terrifies me. So there's also that Seinfeld episode if you guys are interested in seeing what it's like living with a person who's afraid of rabies. I have a few last points I want to bring up before we wrap up this insanely long podcast that's like, I think, well over twice as long as our normal ones, just because we have, I have so much to say about rabies and we've both lived through it. So not through rabies, but like the vaccines. Anyway, the last, one of the last points I want to bring up is talking about the availability of immunoglobulin, particularly if you're traveling. I read some studies from the WHO saying Globally, only 1% to 10% of people who need that immunoglobulin actually get it after they've been bitten. And that's for a few different reasons, because it's extremely expensive. It may be hard to get it to an area. And even if it makes it there, it may not be stored correctly. It may be expired, that kind of thing. So you're not guaranteed when you're traveling that you're going to be in a location after you've been bitten that's going to be able to treat you adequately. It's possible that you've been, you've gotten a severe bite on your arm They might have rabies vaccines, but maybe not enough immunoglobulin. And then you're running that risk in that two-week window where you might need that passive immunity from the immunoglobulin, but you don't have it. And so you could become symptomatic in those two weeks before you get immunity from the vaccine, and then you're fucked. And then you've just got full-blown rabies. So what you can do to protect yourself is, you know, if you're traveling especially, go to a travel clinic, talk to them, tell them where you're going, look at the recommendations from the CDC, that kind of thing. And see if you can get a preventative rabies vaccine, because then if you do get exposed to rabies when you're traveling, you don't need the immunoglobulin. You just need the follow-up booster shots. So just make your life more easier, more easier, make your life less complicated when you're traveling, because it's it literally could save your life if you're not waiting to like find immunoglobulin that just might not be there. And one last thing about travel, both the CDC and the WHO publish maps where it's kind of like a heat map where it's got all the countries and it shows you where rabies is most prevalent. So just keep that in mind. And when you're thinking about getting rabies shots, take a look at that. And also, especially if you're traveling with children, think about getting them rabies shots because a lot of times kids may not let you know if they've handled an animal and they may have been bitten by it. And so that would at least give them some level of protection rather than nothing. All right. And the last, very last thing I wanted to bring up is I... Open this with my number one irrational fear, which is rabid bears. So I'm going to close with rabid bears. And I want to say the incidence of rabies in bears is exceedingly low. Usually see it in, like we said, like bats, skunks, foxes, raccoons, dogs, and a lot of the world. So it doesn't happen in these big carnivores very often, but it can, again, because they're mammals. And I am completely justified in never going camping again. And even being paranoid about the bears in our neighborhood because it does happen. I found some cases. There was one, I think, in 2007 where uh, there was a rabid bear in Maryland. People were out on their ATV, like, doing, like, yard work, basically. They had some pretty big property. And they ended up having to shoot it with, like, birdshot or something to kill it. 
And there was another case I read about, and this was a few years ago too, where I think it actually chased a couple into a house and it tried to actually rip their like outdoor air conditioner units out to get into the house to eat them. So it does happen. It is possible. And it is basically my worst nightmare because you can't like physically like hand to hand, like fisticuffs fight a rabid bear. You just won't fucking win. So that's definitely all we have to say about rabies for this episode. Don't forget that we have a website, which is inthelabyrinthofdeath.com. You can reach us at inthelabyrinthofdeath on Instagram. Follow us and leave us a review if you get a chance. We'd really appreciate it. Tune in next week for a new episode of In the Labyrinth of Death. In the meantime, send us your near misses with death to inthelabyrinthofdeath at gmail.com. We'll see you all next week. This podcast is researched and presented by enthusiasts, not experts, and is for entertainment purposes only. None of the content you have heard is meant to be taken as legal, medical, financial, survival, or any other kind of advice. Please consult with actual professionals.